Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Jessica Patterson, a teacher, writer, and yoga therapist, among other things. She is the founder, owner, and director of Root Center for Yoga and Sacred Studies in Colorado Springs, and she continues to teach nationally and internationally as well. She's also someone I consider to be a mentor to me, and a friend, which makes this a particularly rare Humanitu conversation. I've talked with more than 80 people for Humanitu in the past three years, and I'm pretty sure Jessica is the only the second person I've talked with who I have known and have prior relationship to outside of this Humanitu experience. The first was my wife, of course, and that's Becca Williams. She was my guest for the inaugural episode of the Humanitu podcast. And having trained an apprentice with Jessica as a practitioner, and now teacher of yoga, I have had so many opportunities to have lengthy conversations and to ask her so many questions. And here we're finally recording one of those sessions to share with others. I think what you'll hear in this conversation is a meaningful session with an especially intelligent, light-filled teacher and human being. Jessica shares a wealth of knowledge, things that will resonate with wherever you are in your lives. In fact, I recommend that you consider grabbing a notepad and pen to keep handy as you listen. Now, to finish setting the stage here, this particular exchange with Jessica took place all the way back in November. We'd intended to share it as a readable Q&A on the website, which is how Humanity started. It was still months before the Humanity podcast and studio would come to be, and months before we'd self-isolate with COVID-19-induced stay-at-home orders. We sat on the couch in Jessica's living room. I hit record on my phone, and we dived into what the two of us often talk about, the practice of yoga and how it applies to the very human, very real experience of actual daily living, as well as how it applies to the bigger picture of life. In this conversation, Jessica shares some intensely shaping experiences in her life and where her feral spirit comes from. We talk about yoga as a homonym, how the word, while it looks and sounds the same in its uses, conjures different meanings for different people and leads to common misperceptions. We talk about how we construct identity through language and how we create realities through our words rather than merely reflect our realities with what we think and say. We talk about the essential value of taking a reverent pause and knowing the wisdom of stillness and action and action in stillness. We talk about a lot of things, as typically happens in these conversations. And Jessica also helps me work through some pains in my life as I try to make sense of a world gone mad and try to figure out how not to get swallowed up in despair, rather how to shift to and have faith in a perspective of hope. And finally, as you listen to Jessica's insights of humanness and creativity, which of course is what humanity is all about, I'll ask you to consider the question that I usually put to listeners at the end of each episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? Here's my conversation with spiritual teacher and more, Jessica Patterson. Is there a particular mm-hmm. shaping experience in your life Mm-hmm. something that has shaped perspective, how you see your own humanity, maybe, mm-hmm. humanity in general. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I do think that so many of the formative events for all of us are the ones that sort of strip away or at least really challenge an, a sense of identity. And in that process yields a more authentic, real resilient identity but that process right for most of us is pretty it's it can be pretty grueling so I say that because I think they're also really beautiful formative experiences 
that give a different nutrient. And so it's in maybe it's maybe not easier to point to the formative experiences that I've had that were up hard, but that they are it's so much clearer to me how they shaped me. And they shaped me by th- throwing into question who I thought I was. So if I'm speaking about as you know, I speak a lot about the death of my father, and it's bigger than it's bigger than the death of my the death of my father was plenty, but it's bigger than that because right in that process is the realization that you're going to lose everyone you love, and it was so sudden, and he was so young, comparatively, that it 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 made me very aware of the how i might lose everyone so that that for sure drove a lot of the yogic experience for me in terms of having a having a way of staying connected to something other than the forms that come and go and we can speak more on that but but prior to that i mean i would see another really f- major experience in my life was graduate school I was doing essentially nonfiction writing. It just, the MFAs where I was uh, only had fiction or poetry as options, and that's not, the, that's not what I wrote. So to do what I did, we had a separate program called communication development. And from those classes and from that, this like paradigmatic shift in thinking, it was this realization that who it is we think we are is so often constructed and conditioned and patterned by culture and power structures, you know? And so my writing went in the direction of challenging a normalized, naturalized, violent, quote-unquote, human being. This where unbecoming human all came from. That's the name of my master's thesis. That experience I spent, you know, a good, for in writing my thesis, I was researching the naturalized violence against the most invisible of the most invisible, which would be farmed animals. The ones whose entire being is reduced to products, you know, the way we talk about their bodies and so forth. It's fairly easy to get people to pay attention to or acknowledge sentience or have awe or respect for something exotic. Someone exotic, I should say, because that's my point, is that in language, violence happens first. And as soon as you say a being is a thing, now it's just a product, it's just an object. Do you mean violence happens first in the language we use? Yeah. Which is to say, and this is my circuitous way, right, in our conversation. So my, my graduate work was about how we construct identity in part through language which creates a reality and doesn't reflect a reality. Right? So if, I, if I'm steeped in a culture where the language only allows me to talk about men and women, then we have a very hard time acknowledging any other gender, right? Or any other possibility of identity. So language is one of the first sites of violence. As soon as we refer to another being as an object, as an it or a thing, we've already created that pathway. That, oh, that work, that research, first of all, bearing witness to some of the most horrifying things and 
And also knowing that a lot of the violence against other humans in the world, historically in particular, has been drawn from the naturalized violence against non-humans. It was so barbaric and it was so hard to digest. Coming back to yoga, my yoga practice actually became very, very important to me in graduate school because I was commuting a lot and I was witnessing and reading things that would keep me up all night and just wreck my nervous system. And so I started practicing very regularly as a way of mitigating that stress, that tra- I mean, it's trauma, right? It's very traumatic. This is something I walked away at sort of as an aside. When I, I started working with animal advocacy organizations in that time who I would do work helping with communication. Because, of course, when you're the one on the front line and you're bearing witness to something, whatever it is, you're so horrified that the main reaction tends to be shrill and angry and horrified. And while that's valid, it's also not effective in terms of trying to educate people. And, and also, the, for me, the educational strategy of just shocking people, what it does is it traumatizes people a lot. And having had this experience where I'm watching video footage or I'm, and I'm reading accounts and what, and what you're watching, so what your senses are taking in or you're reading and it's, and it's so awful and brutal, of course, and this is, could be true in any sort of advocacy, right? But what you're watching is so brutal and, you, and somewhere in you, you know in that moment, there's nothing you can do for that being, right? So we get into these sort of general, uh, oh, you know, now I'm going, now I'm going to change my diet or now I'm going to put my money to this cause or now I'm going to go volunteer and do that. And, and that's productive and it's really powerful but somewhere in us, we know that we just watched that individ- that being, you know, we watched that orangutan, we watched that cow, we watched that pig get beaten to death with a pipe, you know, and I think what it does is it like a part of us just cannot, because of the deep compassion and the, this is for me, this is the heart of yoga, we're so deeply connected and we feel things so deeply, but if we don't have a system or a way of metabolizing what we feel, then we compartmentalize. Or we push it away and we say, I just don't want to know. So I became somebody who was very interested in how do you educate and encourage change in a way that isn't just about shocking and paralyzing people through the utter horror or guilt, you know, like when I would work with groups, the, almost the sort of implicit message of their communication was to guilt people into, it's like the Elvis philosophy, you know, um, don't be cruel. The foregone conclusion is that if not told to not be cruel, that we'll be cruel. And I believe, right, that there's actually this deep, intimate kindness for the most part, how do you access that so that someone feels that as their natural state and makes different choices? And so for that, that period, I would say my graduate school, my graduate work, 
and challenging naturalized violence against non-human farmed animals. It's meaning that this idea that what it is human being is acted out on other bodies and historically has been, right? So whoever's been left out of the hierarchy of inclusion has included, of course, women and, uh, and people of color and, uh, you know, what, whatever, wherever the, the bar of inclusion, just, just lowering the bar and saying, okay, you're human, doesn't challenge the structure of it, which is that it's all predicated upon a certain conception of what it is to be human. And that kind of human being I had no interest in, which is why it's unbecoming unbecoming something, uh, unlearning, patterning that tells us that it's, it's natural for humans to do this. It's inevitable. And these same conclusions, oh, this is natural, this is inevitable, this is normal, is what I feel like I challenge all the time in yoga. It's just a different platform, it's a different forum to get people to, to pause and question. I understand this is how I've been, but is this the only way I can be? And, um, and that began in graduate school. That began in this questioning, this discerning the difference between what we have been habitualized to how to be in this world, the way we perform. And if you spend any time, in, if you even have the opportunity to spend any time in a in a culture different from the westernized, um, consumer-based, right, all of that. Think of particularly indigenous people who have had the, who've been able to maintain some sort of continuity and without the interruption of this. We write the, the conception of what it is to be human and one's place in the world is so different and offers different, it, it allows for different opportunities of relationship with the world and one another that feel, and I'm not saying that in a homogenized way, I just mean, right, as soon as I investigate other possibilities of being, something in me comes alive. It's when it feels inevitable and it feels hopeless that I think we, we lose that engagement. You and I are open to this idea of different possibilities. What if the things that you were just saying? And then there seems to be at least perception of a sizable you know, population of people in our country and in the world that are seem opposed to possibilities. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe it's simplification, but a willingness to conserve what we've always, that's status quo, yeah, yeah. status quo. There's nothing else possible. Yeah. So to me, there's an openness, a softness, a willingness, a curiosity. And then there's also, I don't know if there's an opposite to that or just a plain closedness to mm, that. Mm, mm -hmm. And I don't know how to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And I see that being a big part of politics and culture in our country now. I'm curious from a yogic perspective on what we are going through and experiencing and just, yeah, this is also complicated. There's so much to it. I know. So on one hand, we're just acknowledging where are, what, it, what is happening? What is actually happening? And this, I'm going to do this again, but I'm coming back to what you just said, because 
One of the things that I think is uh, critical in any of this work, and I and I feel like is so critical in the quote the yoga world, is an understanding that while theoretically and philosophically we may acknowledge certain principles at work, say for example, all things are connected, which the Western sciences would agree with. I mean, all things are connected or. Or we could say, you know, we're all kin. These sorts of things that you hear that become really easy memes in the world. And the problem with it is it doesn't account for the material reality. That the way identity politics and politics itself and institutions of, of white supremacy and, you know, whatever it is, how it plays out differently on different bodies. Right. So so uh, I hear a lot of fluff in, in the white yoga world about, you know, we're all we're all the same. And that's a white privilege thing to say, because on a different body, a different skin color, a different sexual orientation, a different like whatever it is, if the identity is at all closer to periphery than center, how the world reads and writes that body has material consequences that are very, very real. And what the spiritual or philosophical principles I think can help us to do is to ask, is this the only way we can be? And that question then holding, like, is this the only way we can be? And honoring, and this is how it is right now, is I think sometimes really missing from a lot of the the discourse of the softer, more open, because it just wants to say none of it matters. And that's one of the most offensive things as I've paid attention to uh, what it is to be a conscious ally in any advocacy or in any movement. If I want to be a conscious ally of our indigenous people in this country, um, to say that that race doesn't matter, it matters to those who've been whose bodies have been written and read in particular ways that perpetuates it, right? So my point in that is that I think that here we're in this very volatile, discursive, that's driven by belief systems. And when you talk about like those who hold on more and more to the status quo, we think in our lives, how am I like that? Where am I most rigid in something not changing is where I'm most afraid. And I'm not saying that that, you know, you're not going to necessarily wrap your arms around a make America great again person and say, there, there, I know you're afraid. <laughs> you know. One of the questions that I think helps us navigate it is, can I acknowledge that there's something that's going on underneath what's being said? Like, do you think about when, when you're in training, and we, and we talk about this in terms of as a yogic thing, that a certain belief system, a certain kind of codified or concretized belief system is like a blueprint. And it doesn't really matter what materials you keep using, meaning you can change the words around, but you're going to keep scaffolding the same structures. And it's not until you get a different architect a different, you know, or a different engineer. I'm not sure where the 
metaphor drops off here. I'm not really sure if we did exactly address that. But the point that you need a different blueprint. And that is this sort of deeper, subtler work that I don't think happens when we're cast so far. It's overwhelming if I look at what's happening in the country or the world. But I can turn to this, like, where change happens in the most deeply localized level in actual communication, actual relationship with people, these, these subtle shifts, someone opens up to something, um, seeing something differently, seeing their spouse differently, seeing the person begging on the street differently. It doesn't have the immediate sort of dramatic effect that we all long for so often, but it's that incremental change, right? And so that's, that's what I think I'm, I, that's how I hold hope, even as I have, and this is another thing I don't generally get into publicly or in, you know, because I feel like what I'm an advocate for and where I have the most power as a voice is in people feeling safe to be vulnerable about what scares them or what they, you know, want in their lives. Like for me, it's this, it's very easy, the onslaught of, of what we're witnessing and this polarization. Yoga's always been, uh, well, I shouldn't say some yogas and yogic philosophies are about challenging that the polarity is tr a true polarity, right? And like what people are driven by, I think is actually far, can be more similar than what it looks like on the surface. There's often this idea that yogis don't engage in politics and right. advocacy right. because the idea of I'm supposed to be just peaceful. Neutral. And, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. That's where pain and suffering is. That's where people who yeah. need what yogis contribute in the world. So go to that. Yep. Be an activist. Be an advocate. Be part of this. And so interestingly, in the last couple of years since I have... You know, since Root Ed for me, since I have become more a part of, of this and, and engaged in this practice and these things, I've probably felt more hope in general, more like what I can do can actually change the world, but that's extreme localized, it's within me. Yep. That what I do and these ripples give me more a sense of what I am and who, you know, who I am in the world matters more than I ever thought before, where I might have just been like, what does any of it matter? Well, I think, so, if you remember in the Bhagavad Gita, you must act. And just today, I think I was on one of the accounts, is that what you say? It's one of the accounts I follow on Instagram. I don't know. It's one of the, like, First Nations advocacy groups, and it was um, something that, I don't, I don't remember, but it was, it was essentially that silence itself is, silence is acquiescence type thing. And that reminded me of this, right? That it, like this, we get so overwhelmed in part, just to be fair, like in part, because we are, we are literally inundated with information and awareness that we have not yet developed an actual capacity to make use of. That's where I do think yogic practices become vital. This stuff is coming at us and that's not going to change. And so how do we create an internalized system? How do I become, how do I develop some kind of equanimity and clarity so I can be 
uh, responsive in the world instead of reactive in the world, that I could be creative in my responses instead of just always the knee-jerk reactions. You can't be a yogi and not in some way be engaged in this because you become a sort of radical, at its best, a radical embodiment of these different possibilities, right? But the difference becomes, like, you can become a voice for things and advocate for things, but you also have to, you know, to this oft-quoted and, and deservedly so of Gandhi, like, be the change you wish to see in the world. The most effective way that I ever have created change was not by telling people what they should be or how they're doing it wrong or that they should feel terrible about what they're doing, but is in fact to be someone in whose presence others feel called into something in themselves. And so that's, I think, part of the, that. It's not so much about do I or don't I engage. You have no choice. Even if you try to withdraw from it, then like the, that's a kind of engagement. And it's a kind of engagement that often, I think it's the Joan Halifax, I think it's the Joan, it's either Joanna Macy or Joan Halifax interview with On Being, where they talk about, I think it's Joanna Macy, this love for the world. And there's so many brutal, awful things happening in the world. And we feel hopeless. We feel despair. We feel wrecked by it. We feel overwhelmed by it. But she makes the comparison to if your mother, you know, for whatever it is for someone, of course, that's deeply touching for me, we're sick and we're dying, you wouldn't not visit her because of that. You'd still show up. And I think that's it. Like, how do we connect to what we're devoted to and keep showing up, even if in our lifetime or in this time, what we also have to bear witness to is how ugly it is. Like, for me, what politics the way it works in my life is the actual relationships. These ripple effects, you talk about the ripple effects, you know, like if I can get clear and centered in my own being so that if nothing else, I have a clearer, I have a clearer perspective as I have to take action, that action will be more effective. People who are erratic and reactive and what's the term? I'm sorry, I always want to say willy-nilly, but you know, like um, frenetic. Frenetic is less effective, is less powerful, has less presence. So if, not, if anything, just becoming a, a clearer, more effective presence in the world creates a change, right? But also, flip side, the despair, the why should I care, uh, my voice doesn't matter, all of that, we are seeing the effects of that ripple. Like that is the, if we want to put it this way, that is the karma, that is the unresolved action that we are witnessing at this time that we could trace back to all these other experiences. Um, and we don't often take that bigger point of view because there's this tendency to idealize you know like even in the again in the in the political discourse this is like like oh it things were great and then they weren't but if you really look like that's just never been the case and of course speak to any of our any of the tribes and ask them like when was it last great you know but this it's almost like it requires of us 
geological level perspective with the urgency of the present time to call to action. But if, you're at, if the action we take is only ever informed by this moment, we are, we are so myopic in that if we're not recognizing the much bigger pictures. And I think, so it, it still is this dance to me between the rigidity of institutions, the rigidity of ways of thinking, the rigidity of um, systems that aren't working, and, and, a, and a strange often in what we see is even people who are hurt by certain policies or structures have this dysfunctional devotion to them anyway, right? Um, and, and or this sort of, to the extreme, right, chaotic, almost kind of an anarchy energy that starts to happen. And so, you know, like a yogic teaching like Stiyarasukamasana, you know, a structure for its own sake is rarely beneficial. A structure that creates sukha is what we're, we're, we're looking for that, right? So beginning with ourselves, because if you don't, number one, it'll wipe you out. The despair and the ugliness of the world will just, it'll take you out. But, and so if you want it, if you need to get up, like, you know, Krishna, like, get up, you must do this. And you say, okay, if I must do this, what do I need to do to be able to do this? Right? So what do I need to be, what do I have to do so that I can do this and not fall apart? And that is, I think, the, the very... I feel hopeful when I teach a class and I, I happen to know, I look around, say, and of the 28 people who are there, you know, this person is a doctor and this person is raising kiddos and this person is, you know, um, recently off welfare and this person has just finished their last chemo treatment and, and you see this community of people whose lives might not intersect in any other way, all being attuned to a certain shift in perspective and then carrying that into their lives. And that for me is the, the ripple that's in the long term makes a difference. You're like how you are with your children and how you are with your wife and how you are in your community if we get too caught up, it's like if we get too caught up in the in the drama that's happening, then we're never actually present to what's happening. This is an ongoing practice, and practice action is inherent in that, isn't it? So th there's, I suppose, like a lot of things, there's a spectrum here where my practice has to make a huge impact. That's where I said I feel the most hopeful, and I feel like I have the most impact I've ever had in the world and that going off to be part of protests or things. Okay. Yes. That's an action I can take, but that it doesn't necessarily mean that. Right. Well, the, it, I feel like if I don't have me in this worked out, like that's the, that, that's why I said the word start. That's a starting place is whatever this time is of this practice, because then everything goes from there. Exactly. And it will determine how it goes from there. Right? This is what you hear me say all the time. It, so two things. One is the, the reverent pause. 
I know you've heard me use that phrase, but the reverent pause for me is the key action. And again, this is a teaching in the Bhagavad Gita that's very poignant for me, is uh, to the wise one knowing that there's stillness in action and action in stillness. We are so often motivated by our chaos or motivated by our drama or motivated by our reactivity that not only renders us less effective in our day-to-day and in that whatever that salient action we're trying to take, what is it to be driven by cosmos? You know, what is it to be driven by stillness? What is it to be driven by um, my dharma instead of my drama? What is it to be driven by my faith, my hope, instead of my despair? It doesn't actually, for me, preclude... So what it does is it gives me... I will go deeper and further and go for longer because I'm resourced. That's it. And so that's what the main part of that practice is for me. But it's life in general. Like I have found when I had when I was doing my research, and yes, I practiced and I had been practicing for a long time, but it was not the central part of my life, right? And and because of that, it took me to my knees on a daily basis and I hated people. You know what I mean? Not specific people this is the point but it made me like so misanthropic and so I just found every like commercials would come on like a commercial comes on with a with a a pig as a character to sell pork and it's it's like so flat right so I would get incensed by these things and my point is that the accumulation of those reactions will eventually, it's like, you know, dirties the windshield. You can't, you just, you're like, you're only ever seeing through that anymore. So you're seeing through, everything is moved by your, your commotion and your drama and your reactions. And all of those things are real, but if you want to put them into real action, you need the reverent pause how unwilling we are kind of culturally in intimate relationships and friendships and just pause and take a breath and and then respond. And so if you could say, like, what allows me or you to feel more hopeful is that we're not, we're, we're pausing a little bit and that's not disengaging. It's actually, it's like taking the big deep breath so you can engage m- with much more efficacy and, and care. I think there's this funny thing. I know this is a yoga thing, but it's, it's also just a life thing. Well, I hear people talk about vairagya, this term, uh, and they'll say detachment, you know, non-attachment. all sorts of words around it. I know that's what it, you know, that can be translated into non-attachment. But it's not being attached to the fruits of something so that you can be deeply engaged with the thing itself. And so what I see is this perspective that what it is to be a yogi 
or to be spiritual or whatever is to be totally disengaged from everything, which for me is just another way of talking about privilege because the only people who can really disengage have the privilege to disengage. But if instead you say, what I'm not attached to is the outcome and I'm not going to try and control the variables so that I'm going to go into this with all I've got. Like think about that in a relationship. If we can go toward one another, whether it's an intimate relationship, meaning like sexually intimate relationships, all of these relationships are intimacies, right? Friendships and communities, intimacy. But so if I could go toward that and say, it doesn't have to only look one way. It doesn't have to only look one way, which means I'll keep showing up and paying attention to who you actually are. And I'll keep listening to who you're actually saying you are and so forth, which is different than saying it can only go this way. So for me, it's this practice of resourcing myself so that I can engage more deeply in my relations, in all my relations, in my family, in my friends, in my work, in my community, and with lovers, like whatever it is that I really engage because I'm not like, oh, it can only look one way. There's only one way this can look. Allowing for different perspectives and all of that has a greater effect than you going to one, like, great, go to the protest, that's great. But it's like the difference between the person who just practices yoga once a week for an hour and a half and the person who's doing something every single day. Like the the effect that it will have on your children and therefore the ripple effect happens because we're consistent in something, not because we just do it once in a while in a big loud way. The, 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 big, the big loud things are great, but they're more powerful if you're doing it all the time in subtle ways too. I'm wondering about your, for you to describe yourself before yoga. So like the, when I, of course, we're always looking back through the lens of who we've become and who we are, but I, what I can say, so when I was little, um, growing up, first of all, I felt I, I had a great childhood. Like my parents divorced when I was very early and um, there were, it was, my mom worked full time and raised the three of us and, and went to graduate school and did all of that at a time when it was, you know, very sexist in terms of like what she was paid and you know, all this stuff and I had and I had the most my, my my mom and my family created like a remarkable I had a remarkable childhood and so I want to give credit where credit's due because I know so much of what I experienced as a kid was because I had the safety and support and independence and sort of like wild creativity in my family but I spent a lot of time just running amok in the woods where I grew up out northeast of Black Forest. Well, and I should say I grew up in two places, right? I grew up as a faculty child at Fountain Valley School, which is a boarding school here. And we had on-campus housing all my life. And so we'd sometimes be on campus and then go out to our place out in Black Forest, which was real home. And then and my mom eventually married my stepdad and he lived there week during the week and we would go back and forth and then eventually after my sophomore year of high school my mom and I both wanted to live in Black Forest and just commute. That's all that's neither here nor there but to say that I grew up in these two very different experiences than most people. One was this kind of strange utopia of almost like a commune because 
a boarding school in the in the in the 70s and 80s way more so than now right first of all there weren't there wasn't as much development around it so it really was like isolated out in the prairie but all of these families all the faculty of of the place were like aunties and uncles right and we would just run like wild we just ran around and did whatever we wanted and we were always looked after and Right, so there's that experience, and then there's this experience of growing up way northeast of Black Forest. Also, back then, none of the development, which to this day breaks my heart, and I'll get at as part of who I am. And on 80 acres of forest, like again, I would just run around, and so I spent a lot of time in a I'm very feral, and that's not changed. And when I got to college and lived not only in a dorm, but then like in neighborhoods and like houses next to houses. I'd not done that. I'd never lived that way. And that sounds so unusual, but I think that's a huge part of why I am the way I am. I'm really comfortable having big stags in my yard, but I get really weirded out if if I feel like a neighbor's just dropping by, you know? Um, so I had a deep love for wild places as a kid. We had a cabin at some point too when I was younger up between Roosevelt National Forest and Rocky Mountain National Park and the Pingree, near CSU's Pingree campus up in the mountains, um, which is where we scattered my father's ashes. And my all my memories of childhood are like my best memories are memories of that like being outside and in the woods and imagining things make like imagining entirely different worlds and um by the time and i had this deep profound love for non-human animals like when i had i had my allowance would go to greenpeace when i was a kid my best friend and i wrote a song about when the Rainbow Warrior got sunk, we wrote a song about the Rainbow Warrior, um, which was Greenpeace's ship. So I was that. I also grew up in a very musical family. My, my parents, that's that picture there. My parents were in a band together. My mom's a beautiful singer. My father is a great musician. I grew up playing piano, and then I played flute and clarinet, and I played guitar, which I still have a guitar. Um, I sang. I, you know, so grew up in this very musical creative, was an athlete, I played soccer from a very young age all the way through high school and field hockey, um, loved backpacking and camping and all of that. So, so all of these experiences, it's interesting to me because I remember being really young and sitting down in the woods. I have this journal somewhere, a little dear diary thing. And I had this realization. I mean, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. And I wrote it this way, should find the original, where it, a storm was coming in. And I knew that from the storm's perspective, like the way I was experiencing it was very much based on who I thought I was. But from the storm's experience, something very different was happening. And so I think this deep love of the of wild, um, a, a sort of feral spirit that never really quite understood why I'm supposed to be this way or dress that way or act this way or 
any of the sort of like I don't think I was properly trained how to be like you know living in that way um, so by the time I got to high school what the way I've always described is like I had this really magical childhood and high junior high and high school were profoundly disappointing realizations uh, and it felt like it just felt I don't even know how to explain it, right? And I think a lot of people go through that at that age. But for me, it was just like all the magic got taken out of the world. And it felt just really kind of gross. And I and I wasn't terribly interested in it. And that's probably when I gravitated more toward punk and this sort of like music and culture that rejected a lot of that. But at the same time, I had this spirit that just you know I took 30 days off of high school one year and I would literally sit I don't know how I don't remember how I got I think I was depressed but I was I was really just sort of disenchanted that's what I was I was a disenchanted 16 year old and I sat in the woods almost every day and just wrote and observed and just it was for me like I always understood Thoreau I understood all of that I didn't understand how I was supposed to be a teenager and I, I was so resistant to my training to be a particular kind of young woman or a particular thinker or anything so I've always had this very rebellious streak I guess and that also all continued to play out in my yoga training. Like it's great to learn a way of doing things, but I'm not going to ever say like that's the way. You know, this sort of disenchanted, like, okay, I guess this is the way we're supposed to be, but I always had this rebellious streak, you know, so like my ex-husband, again, like if two if people meet the two of us back then in particular, we would seem like polar opposites. But anyway, so I, you know, I got married and I, I mean, I started practicing yoga right when I went to college. So that, it was there. But in terms of when it became really solid for me was I was kind of living a life, and I don't have any regret, like the light, the, the marriage and the, I was teaching UCCS, like what, all the different things that I was doing were fine. But I think I was on that path of just being patterned into blend the sort of blending in like this is what you're supposed to this is what marriage is supposed to look like and even within a marriage this is what you you know i did i remember always railing it like my my ex-husband would want to do chores on our days off together and i'm like let's go drive to the mountains and go hiking he's like well, we gotta get this stuff done i'm like why and i'm still like that you know like, why when we could go have this experience so I do think that prior, I think um, as who I was, I'd become, you know, I was teaching, I was teaching writing. Interestingly, I think this is the connection that I keep making is that who I've been in some ways has been very constant, but the forms that it takes has been very, like, so on the outside, it looks very different. But for me, there's a very consistent this love for the natural world, this connection to the natural world, this need, this desire and this drive to do things differently 
And then what happened when yoga became a much more central part of my life as kind of a lifeline when my dad died and everything felt thrown up in the air was it gave me a way of doing all of that. I'm wondering if that is, or how much of that might have been in hindsight with reflection and these things to recognize yourself as, you know, I've been this Mm -hmm. because I feel like I might be within my own story connecting some of those things. It's like, wait a second. Okay. Now I'm seeing that I always was. And whereas I might've previously, I probably have previously Describe some of that story as oh there was this thing I was trying to fit in shoulds and whatever I didn't like that and almost as if I'm just now in the last couple of years getting to be me when really there really probably is that thread it's just what did that look like and what was my perspective on it yeah or how did that part of me I don't like essentialism so it's not this I don't have this belief that, that everything's always distilled down to some sort of essentialist thread but I do think that there's something that threads through our lives that in retrospect we realize has been pretty steady and you know and it's aspects of us that the more spiritual part of me would say it's also the part that I think drives us to our own dissatisfaction and this isn't language that always works for me but I think it's a way of articulating it that can make sense is to say on some level you know, who you are really, you know, some people will call that your soul or your spirit, your true nature, whatever, is always insisting on a kind of, is insisting on you, is insisting on itself. So like I may have taken a job to do, to teach writing or whatever, and that's not, that wasn't a wrong turn. And it was like a necessary thing to do, but that like in our culture, it would be like, that's your job. And the expectation, less so now, but generations before, and we certainly, you know, are, have been on the, the cusp of that shift where this expectation that you're going to do one thing for a long period of time. Um, so to be able to say, like, there's something, there's some valuable experience I had or you had within something that we did as adults and necessarily had to move away from it. And it's like the same part of us that took us into it and out of it. There's there's something consistent in it. That for me actually has been part of the conversation with myself as I'm more recently again kind of looking at, well, I've been this all along. Right. Regardless of what the job was I had right. or whatever, what I thought was happening that I didn't like or was taking me away from this thing that this wispy vague thing that I didn't know who I wanted to be when whatever you know that mm-hmm. language we would use and so a question that I have then is what you see as to what your dharma or duty or I think a lot of people would say purpose in life mm-hmm. and I think that's a really big question the purpose part of that for those maybe in more recent years where it wasn't just do this one thing, have this one career, mm-hmm. one whatever, mm-hmm. and retire when you're 65 or whatever, and then you have your life. Right. Oh. But rather, you know, there's been this kind of shift to the idea of, well, let's find purpose. How can we align mm-hmm. the meaning of my life with livelihood or whatever? Yeah. So Dharma, for me, 
is much more a question of how I am in the world than what I'm doing. And I feel in line with my how. And that's why I'm okay with whatever form or forum it takes. If I can feel at peace with how I'm doing things, then I'm not so attached to the what. Like, I'm not the person who's driven to have multiple studios, right? Well, we don't even call it a studio, right, actually. And it's not that I don't care about Root. Like, I care so deeply about Root. I care deeply enough about Root to let Root outgrow me. Like, that's my, right? That's the, that's that Bayragia. So, like, my love for what I do is the quality with which I do it, not the thing I do. And so how I would answer that, like, do you, I don't, I don't, I'm not very, it's impossible for me to say what that is and, and really encapsulate it. And I think it would be impossible for most people to say about themselves without getting conflate, you know, conflating what they're doing with the actual dharma of it, as I understand it. So for me, it's the how. What's been consistent in everything that I have done, and therefore, and when I say that, not because I've always wanted to do it, but I've been, how I've been kind of called into, or called myself into, has been this challenging of identity in my personal life, in my relationships, and in my work, with this sort of possibility of, with possibility. So that's, that's kind of like what I do consistently. I did it when I taught writing. I did it in teaching women's studies. I do it as a teacher of yoga all along the way. I mean, even if we're like, oh, my shoulders will always be this way. It doesn't, you know, like on any level we can say, we can challenge where we've confused our habit with our nature and create possibilities to reclaim our, na- our what's natural about us or what's intrinsic to us. And that seems to be very consistent in what I do and how I do it. You mentioned yoga as Halloween. Yeah. And. Yeah. Yes. It's not either or. I feel like there's such a vague, it's all a gray area. In terms of all these interpretations of it. But to use two words, there's yoga and use the capital Y with that. And then what I look at as, to pick another point in the gray spectrum of things, fitness yoga. Mm -hmm. That perception that that's as thin and narrow as the lane is. Go to a studio, bend around, wear the brands, put photos on Instagram. And how do you answer someone when they say, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And for me, I struggle with this idea because... I feel uncomfortable with the idea of answering teach yoga among the other things I could say mm-hmm. because I know it's like, and I've had a, a few artists that I've talked with for humanity bring this up kind of on their own. Even when people ask what I do before I even say artist, I just, I know what's going to, I don't want to say it. I know what's going through their heads and you say yoga and it's this, a similar kind of thing. Oh, they have their idea of what it means and it most likely is not what I'm saying it is. Mm-hmm. But it's that one word, that homonym, how you work with that in a world that I feel like just kind of doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. This is what I ask of any 
teacher trainee or mentee or anything like that, as I say, figure out what your definition of yoga is because that's what you're always actually doing. The, the word yoga, right, for so many reasons, for the, the sort of cultural misappropriations and the dishonoring of certain traditions and then, right, all the confusion around all these different traditions and you've got this tradition which says this and this one that says that and so that's why, and that was Mark Singleton, just to give credit where credit is due in, the, in his introduction to yoga body, is the one who suggests that rather than refer to yoga as synonym, like that they're all pointing to the same thing, to say they actually sound the same, but they're pointing to different things. So on one hand, I think that's useful just as a heuristic, it's like just a way of learning something to be able to say, like, let's almost just dispense with the word for a moment and think about the why underneath any of these things and, and the how, right? So if I can say, okay, if I define what yoga is for me as, and, and the two definitions that have meant the most for me all these years, the one being Sri Pramananda Saraswati's yoga is the state of missing nothing. You've heard me say that over and over and over and over and over again because it's so resonant for me. That I know that what I'm actually teaching and practicing is that experience of oneself as whole and capable and therefore completely equipped to engage in the world and do meaningful work, right? Like, and, and, and the state of missing nothing that you're not checked out all the time or just so deeply ingrained in your habits that you're missing your life, right? What I say, the performance of a life instead of presence in a life. And then the other definition, um, really from Mark Whitwell, yoga is direct participation in life as life itself. So that's what it is. But in, so I take these definitions to say, that's what I'm really doing. And there are cohesive, time-tested ways of experiencing that. Because in both those cases, even if I just take those two definitions, say, are you whole? Are you whole and missing nothing? Yes. Do you feel that all the time? Nope. And fair enough, why would you? Right? The yoga is the direct participation with life as life itself in the expression, the fullness that you are, the, the beauty and the function and the intelligence of the cosmos, as Mark would talk about, right? Is this true? Are you in fact that? Yes. Do you feel it all the time? Nope. Fair enough, why would you? So that's what I always say, like, there's what I'm really practicing or what we're really teaching. And then there's this recognition that th those can be facts, just like your relationship, your dependency on the sun. The sun is life itself. We're not 24 hours a day, seven days a week aware of that connection. It doesn't change the fact. So there are facts that we're not aware of, that we don't have, we're not embodying, we're not experiencing in our relationships and in our thoughts. And so what I'm practicing are ways that allow that experience to, to be, uh, to have that experience more often with less effort to hold the charge of it. Like what happens when I hold the charge of my wholeness, I interact in all my relationships very differently. So when people ask me what I do and I say I teach yoga, the other part of that is like if someone automatically assumes that all I do is teach stretchy bendy stuff, I'll meet them there because I'll say, you know, the whole purpose of, the, of that experience is for you to disrupt the patterns of your body. If you're habitual in your body in a particular way, you'll only experience yourself that way and you'll say, this is all I am. So even stretchy bendy stuff, 
does its job and still can be in the service of these definitions, right? And you know me well enough to know that I, I have no problem then telling someone, like, look, that part of yoga is one aspect of a whole apothecary of practices that, from which we can draw and, and effect change and effect healing or uh, catharsis, whatever it is that someone thinks that they want from it. So, you know, but I have a zillion different conversations with people about when they ask what I do. And just, you know, it's fascinating to me. I was on a plane coming back from California, and I was sitting next to this elderly couple who were really sweet because they were holding hands a lot. But I had my big noise-canceling Bose earphones on, and I was listening, I was re-listening to the Gordon Hempton interview on On Being because it's one of my favorites where he talks about the last quiet places, right? And I was madly taking notes as I was thinking about all sorts of stuff. And at one point there was a pause and it, I have the noise cancellation, but I could hear them. And I heard him say to his wife, she must be an executive or something. She's working so hard. And it made me laugh so much inside that from their perspective, I'm like working. And in my perspective, I'm like, I was working, but it wasn't, it was not like as an executive, you know, it was like, I'm writing about the fact that human hearing evolved to be most attuned to bird song. That's what I was writing about. I wasn't writing like, I wasn't doing my bookkeeping. You know, I wasn't doing sales. I wasn't trying to market my training program. You know, I was fascinated that our, that the evolution of human hearing had, had coincided, was attuned to bird song as an indication of healthy environment. And I just thought it was so funny. So if I had said, well, I'm a yoga teacher, where that conversation would have gone, you know? You know, in simple ways too, I'll say, I really just am someone who teaches and helps people reclaim something of themselves through their breath, through their physical posture, through the way they relate to people, through the way they think, through the way they care for themselves. And sometimes we stretch and bend. I will sort of, I, I think this is a sign of, I don't want to say amateurism, but lack of experience. I don't have the experience with, formally with the practice of the teaching and things that you do, mm -hmm. obviously. And I suspect that that is part of what continues to confuse, maybe even nag at me sometimes. But it also comes from my personal experience that I, I think you might remember that whatever it is, getting close to 15 years ago now, when I, I think that's when I went to my first yoga classes and it was in a studio of, of a gym. Mm -hmm. it, was in, mm -hmm. it was in a fitness gym. Mm -hmm. And in my perspective and in hindsight still, even though it gets a little fuzzy now, the experience was entirely one that was physical. And that teacher who was pretty young and I say that only to say, so just by math, probably a bit limited in experience herself. When she asked me once what I thought of class, oh, I'm not sure, you know, about the physical parts because for me, I would go run, I would go lift, I would, I would do physical, physical, sweaty things. That was the way I wanted to connect physically. So I'm only seeing it as fitness, and it's the only way I feel it's being presented. But I said, I like the meditative qualities. 
and, and I had at times worked with meditation and kind of read things and whatever with that. So I was interested in these things and dabbled in that over some years. The conversation dropped dead right there. Yeah. And I, I did not go to another class for more than a decade easily. Yeah. And so it's from a personal place as well that I feel this sort of, I want people to know there's more to this. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to come at it from that immature and amateur sort of place of let's get on a soapbox and let's just yell right. it, right? Right. So well, I just, I, there's two things that come to mind on that. And I know we are going to have to... It still is the, it still is the homonym thing. Yeah. Because, because it's... And what, but, well, actually, there are three things. So one is... Four things. Okay. One thing is, in fact, you've been practicing yoga all your life. Your body and your breath have been in this merge, this union, always. They're one thing. Without one, there's not the other. They're one thing. Yoga, right? So there's that. This, the, but the, the, maybe the more important things. Like teaching asana can be just the kind of dumbed-down gymnastic, exaggerated body contortions for its own sake, for sure. And that, that's just, that's fine. Like that's, I mean, I say dumbed down because that's what my teacher says, you know, and it's sort of this like, let's take all the yoga out of yoga and, and the, you know, like, I like everything about this except the yoga part. Like when people are like, I don't like the spiritual. That's, in the that's where I'm saying capital Y yoga. Right. Fitness yoga. Yeah. So if we say that, but, but what I would say is that there's a generous place to also say that, um, one can, Okay, the purpose of yoga, this is what Indu Aurora would say, the purpose of yoga is yoga. The purpose of running may be something else. The purpose of, right, so if you're calling a practice a yoga practice, and Sharon Gannon, we used to say this, if you want to call it, if you want your asana practice to be a yoga practice, then, right, then then, then you're moving through it in a different way. So if what I want, this is what I would say, to teach this and to for your own purpose and for mine too, because believe me, there's a lot that I look around in terms of my long-term asana practice, and I'm kind of like, why the hell are you do this? And people will come up with the therapeutic benefits of certain things and the contraindications and all of that, but we can come up with that with anything, with running, with swimming, right? We can come up with all of that. So instead of this need to make everything about yoga asana ancient, which we both know it's not a lot of it, or in and of itself, some sort of magical moment. What makes it different is how we do it. That the invitation in a formal asana practice is that I am in that time directly, directly, Connecting my breath and my body in a particular quality, right? So like through the evenness of breath, I am actually practicing in my nervous system equanimity. You know, if I, like that's for me that the asana practice, again, has less to do with what I'm doing than how I'm doing it. And if I can do it in a way, if we want to use the word meditative, if I can do it in a way that is creating 
balance that's allowing me to, if I am spending 14 hours of my waking day anxious and stressed and rushing from thing to thing to thing, there's a breath pattern for that. And I'm, and my body is doing all that too. That's, that's the thing that we forget is that our bodies are, our, our minds, bodies, and breath are one thing. And so then when we say, well, I'm going to set aside a little bit of time every single day where what I'm asking of my body, my mind, and my breath is this collaboration of sort of like just participating with my life force, then whatever shape I'm taking or asked to take and I'm doing that allows me a different experience. It's different than that's the difference between performing, the performance of the asana as though there's this platonic, like there's this ideal and I'm going to fit myself into it. There's this mold. This is what it should look like and I'm going to try and be that versus I'm going to have that, I'm going to let that experience arise in me, through me, as me. Then it becomes infinite. You know, like I'm not trying to be a snake. I'm not trying to be a cobra. I'm not trying to be a tree. I'm not trying to act like a warrior. I'm letting warriorness arise in me as me. I'm letting treeness, the qualities of tree, arise in me as me. So that anything that's not tree in that moment within me dissolves. And I have this different experience of myself. And it disrupts my patterns of my body and my breath, my posture, the way I carry myself, all of that. That's what the power is for me. The shapes, you know, they're be to be creative with the shapes, to be intelligent in terms of, you know, what we're doing so that we're not creating injury, to honor where certain things, but, you know, most of the shapes that have been passed down to us were passed down by other people's inquiry into experience. So to say to a, to a student, look, the purpose of the forms is for you to get to know the consciousness that's taking that form. Or for you to become more adept at, at various forms in your life. Okay, those were today's words of wisdom and perspective from writer and teacher of Capital Y Yoga, Jessica Patterson. I welcome your reviews to the Humanity Podcast at Apple Podcasts. And if you have feedback you'd like to share directly with me about this conversation or the Humanity Podcast series, send me an email at adam at humanity.co or reach me by Instagram DM at humanity. Also, if you have a story or know someone who does, wherever you or they are located, and would like to be considered for sharing it on the Humanity Podcast, you can use the email address I just gave for that too. I encourage you to share and follow the Humanity Podcast so that we together can create the beauty we wish to experience in this world. The Humanity Podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, and it's always ready to play on our site, humanity.co. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.